0: Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. Post a job today at LinkedIn.com full and get fifty dollars off your first job post. It's Monday, October 21st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me in studio today, the one and only, Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, hey. We've got some restaurant news. We've got some We've got some share buyback news that, depending <laughs> on your point of view, may be good news or it might be bad news. We'll we'll get into that. We're going to start with Boeing, though, because shares of Boeing are down 10% in the last two days of trading. And we're not even through the full trading day on Monday. We're just going for Monday morning and all of Friday. And this is because, on Friday afternoon, emails from late 2016 came to light that brought uh, Basically, highlighted technical problems that the 737 Max had that were, and I'm quoting from one of the emails, that were running rampant in the flight simulator sessions. And so, so I saw this story Friday afternoon. This was after we had taped Motley Fool Money, which is why we didn't include it in the most recent episode. But this appears to be the latest example of the old adage that. Um, In politics and in business, the cover-up is worse than the crime.
1: Um, Yeah, I'd say that's probably fair. I mean, I think it's a very good lesson as an investor to always remember that, that it can always get worse. I mean, even when it seems like things are just as bad as they can be, Never ever dis- dismiss the, the the possibility of things getting a little bit worse, and I think this this qualifies. I mean, it, it, it there are just so many things that stem from this, from culture problems to actual uh, chain of command problems to, to how how good of a grasp does management actually have on this problem I mean do you even trust Boeing at this point I mean it's very easy to understand the short-term concerns and the problems here I mean we're watching that play out on Boeing's stock price we read how we we have gone from what was once considered the greatest. Product, the the greatest driver of this business ever, to really now what is one of the biggest failures, if not the biggest failure, uh, in, in in one of the biggest drags on on the company uh, for the foreseeable future, and I mean I I don't know. They they just had they have a lot of damage control to take care of and it's not to say this is the end of Boeing. I mean I'm not trying to, to jump into sort of that that hyperbole there, but it is something. I mean for investors you need to start wondering. Okay, is it even worth really looking at this business because you have to think about all of the the implications beyond just Boeing. I mean think about all of all of the companies that are in the supply chain uh, that that work with Boeing. I mean they have more than 600 suppliers in that supply chain that that are going to be affected by this. One of them. I mean, Spirit Aerosystems, Boeing's biggest supplier. Boeing is their biggest customer, and Spirit is a fraction of the size of Boeing, right? And I mean, they are now in in this just total total. uh, They don't they don't know what (laughs) what exactly is going to happen. So so it's not just Boeing is the point. I mean, we saw it play out with the automakers a number of years back. I mean, big. Uh, problems with big companies like this can really reach out and affect a lot of different companies, and, and this is this is something that is is certainly global. It's obviously very important in the uh, market of air travel. Um, you know, I don't know that there's anything that really tells us things are going to be getting better anytime soon.
0: Well, and there are not surprisingly more calls for. Um, whether it's um, greater intervention by regulators, um, con- more congressional hearings, that sort of thing, um, and for whatever you think of those processes, those are things that, at the end of the day, just take focus from the business away from what they're trying to do, and uh, they have to they have to go deal with that. I mean, that's one of the things that you look back twenty years ago on. Uh, the government looking to break up Microsoft, and Microsoft spent so much time and energy and money um, d- dealing with those issues that they missed the boat on some other initiative. So this is this is something that Boeing, for for anyone who um, was looking at the latest round of earnings that came out, I think we talked about Delta and maybe American Airlines, and you know you have the CEOs United as well coming out and saying. Um, yeah, our timeline on the 737 MAX has uh, been pushed back a little bit for anyone who thought, okay, maybe January 2020 is when this is behind Boeing. This is something that points to the fact that it gets extended even further. Um, and, you know, to your point about the stock, I mean, that's, <laughs> I, I think that it's, it's harder and harder to make the case for Boeing. On the flip side, by the way, if when this whole thing started, you were a Boeing shareholder and you thought to yourself, I think this is going to get worse before it gets better. And I'm just going to sell my shares of Boeing and I'm going to buy shares of Airbus. <laughs> Congratulations because Airbus is up 45% year to date.
1: I mean, as it should be. I mean, for investors, I mean, that's obviously what we're focusing on here. I mean, we're trying to figure out is there an opportunity here for investors as it pertains to Boeing? And there very well may be. I mean, the stock has gotten pummeled, all things considered. It is. A company with a long track record of success in playing a vital role in the market that it serves. Um, I mean, if you look back to the call they were making, they were talking about getting this thing back up and running um, as early as the fourth quarter of this year. Now, that is clearly not going to happen because there are going to be. I was going to say the quarter <laughs> that we're in right now. <laughs> they're going to be. They're going to be investigations. There are going to be questions. I mean, there, there regulators are going to probably leave at this point no stone unturned, given these texts that just came out over the weekend. Because, I mean, it's just, it's clear that that we just don't know everything, and there probably is more bad news out there. So, so then you have to think, OK, well, if, if we're that delayed on the 737 actually coming back online, then you have to start making an estimation of when you think that's going to be, how much of a tailwind you think that could be for the business, but then also taking into consideration all of the other uh, dynamics of the company's financials, really, because I mean, you're, it's a business where I mean, the top line was was fairly stagnant, okay. And I mean, I think it's safe to assume that we're going to see a little bit of a uh, a, a decel there. In uh, with a company like this, and we'll talk more about Sherry purchases in a little bit. But I mean, they they bent, uh, they they spent close to a little bit more actually than forty billion dollars in Sherry purchases since two thousand and fourteen. That's brought the share count down significantly, about twenty percent since then. Uh, my point being that Sherry. Purchases have been a big part of the thesis of investing in this company, and those repurchases now are on hold. They should probably be on hold for many, many quarters to come, even after they get this all resolved, because they really do need every financial resource they can they can get. Uh, so, to me, that just leads that leads me down that road. If there's more uncertainty here than I really care to deal with, I mean, there probably is some kind of a dirty value play here, but. Man, I think I'd I'd give it some time and wait for the rest of this to shake out because I don't
0: think it's done. It's a great point about the top line uh, for Boeing because you know one of the arguments that people make and they're not wrong when they make it when they talk about Boeing and sort of the the multi-year lead time the the airlines have these planes on order several years into the future and I get that. But if you're United Airlines, if you're Oscar Munoz, and a concept we talk about all the time across all manner of industries is pricing power. Who has the pricing power right now with Boeing? I get that there is, you know, you can't just necessarily switch like, oh, I'm going to cancel my order at Boeing and I'm going to put it. You know, this isn't this isn't Uber Eats. (laughs) You know, I didn't like the food. I'm going to cancel it. I'm going to order from this other place and it'll be here 20 minutes later. I get that, but. I feel like if you're United Airlines, any of these major airlines, you've got more pricing power than you had, say, six months ago. And you get to go to Boeing and say, um, I'm not looking to switch to Airbus, but I'd love it if we could negotiate the price a little bit more.
1: I couldn't agree more. I think you're totally right. And I think when you when you look at it even even one step beyond that, and recognize that the airlines that were really most dependent on this plane they've already essentially ratcheted back their guidance and their plans. I mean, they've adjusted schedules, they've they've taken flights off off the docket that were there. I mean, they they've adjusted more or less. So they're not looking at this from a point of desperation from a from a stance of desperation. And when you when you aren't desperate, then you're going to be able to negotiate a little bit more. You're going to have a little bit more negotiating power. And I'm sure a lot of these airlines are like you know, hey, listen. I mean, it, you need Boeing and Airbus, I think, really to supply this market. I mean, I don't think one company is going to be able to take care of it all. But yeah, I mean, if you're an airline and you're looking to get this thing back into the rotation, you're going to go back to to Boeing and I think say, listen, guys, we're not going to try to rake you over the coals here, but but you know, give us a little something, give give me a little reason, a little consideration, some some kind of goodwill that that makes me feel comfortable signing on with you, sticking with you for the long haul, and that's going to play out in Boeing's financials.
0: Last week, we talked about retail spending possibly being scaled back this holiday season, and it looks like consumers like you and me may not be the only ones spending less. Goldman Sachs is warning clients that companies are spending less on share buybacks, uh, predicting that for all of 2019, share buybacks are going to come down about 15% year-over-year, with uh, the thought that there's going to be another 5% drop in 2020. And again, I think, (laughs) I think depending on the companies that you have in your portfolio, depending on the track record of the management teams when it comes to buying back shares, you're either thrilled by this news, (laughs) or you're realizing that this is going to ding your returns a little bit. It it very well could. I mean, there there are a couple
1: of interesting um, angles to the story that I was thinking about as as we were talking about it this morning. And I mean, number one, when you look at the S and P 500. And you consider the companies that are a part of that index. If you look at the the share repurchases for the second quarter of this year, there were 164.5 billion dollars. That was 20.1 percent lower than last quarter, and it was 13.7 percent lower than the same quarter last year. Now it's it's when you look at that total number, 164.5 billion. Noteworthy is that Apple spent. Close to twenty billion dollars on share repurchases. So ultimately, Apple was responsible for about eleven percent. And when you look at it even further out, I mean, the concentration is really even more stark. I mean, the the top twenty companies in the index accounted for basically half of the total in in repurchases. So that's one thing right there. Now the other thing to keep in mind. And Chris, we're not market timers here. I think we we every speak
0: for yourself. Day, no, no, <laughs> every, no, we're not. We're not day, market we, timers. Every day, we
1: certainly try to point people towards that longer term outlook. And, and but it is worth noting, I think, because FactSet's got some very good data that stretches back quarters and years. And and ultimately, the story that it tells is that companies, for the most part, on average, they get share buybacks wrong. At least from the perspective of, if you're looking for companies to buy their shares back at low prices. It seems that, when the times are good, and times have been good, I mean, we also have to remember not only not only is the consumer in good shape, but I mean, these companies had some fairly uh, uh, substantial tax legislation that went their way that encouraged them to return more value to shareholders. But generally speaking, this fact that data tells us that as as companies, as as the the times are good, companies are are feeling great. They're flush with cash. They're buying back stock, and then they start pinching the purse strings just a little bit as they see things slowing down, and then you see underperformance in the market. These companies really pull back on the share repurchases and protect their coffers. Now, that's all just to say that if this is something we're seeing coming down the pike here, if that fact-set data, historically it tells us one thing, if history remains true, then logically we would see some type of a pullback in the market from this if this is true, if that correlation still remains. And there's no reason to think it wouldn't. Um, it, it, I'm not. I'm not telling people to to wait for the market fall because it's coming, but I think that is something to at least pay attention to when you see data like this, because there are certainly data out there that tells us that as these companies start pulling back on the repurchases, we see things slowing down. We see underperformance in the market, and that underperformance in the market could be a nice time to to uh, to be buying if you're a net buyer of stocks, as we are.
0: And one question to ask as you look at the companies in your portfolio is of the CEO how good is this person at capital allocation yeah because it's entirely possible particularly if you've got you know some of these younger growth companies in your portfolio they're not buying back shares and you and for that matter you don't want them to but you also want to make sure that the investments that they're making in growth are the right ones.
1: Yeah, I mean, buying back shares at the end of the day, it's an investment. And I mean, with a lot of these smaller companies, a lot of these SaaS businesses that we keep talking about, they're younger. Uh, they need those finances. They shouldn't be repurchasing shares. I think it was very critical of Spotify at one point for repurchasing shares for a business. They need that. They need that capital. So, so make sure you invest it wisely. Um, we talked about Boeing here, and you look at all of these repurchases they made over the past five years. Starting in 2014, going to today, do those repurchases look like a wise investment? I don't know, it seems like maybe we could argue no. Uh, you look at another company, I mean, one we love talking about, one I love talking about here, of course, is McCormick. And the reason why I bring up McCormick is because they made that big RB Foods acquisition a couple of years ago and very explicitly said, part of this deal, because it's so capital intensive, we're suspending share repurchases, we're not going to be buying back any more shares. We want to focus on making sure that we can pay our dividend, that we can grow our dividend, keep that dividend aristocrat status. And when the time is right, when our capital ratios have gotten back back to this level that we're setting for you now, then we can consider starting to, to repurchase shares again. But I mean they just made that blanket statement that listen, we value this capital, we need it for this, so we're not going to use it for, for repurchases. And I think to this point, that's been a very wise call. Um so again, I mean, the signs that investors can look for when it comes to share repurchases. I mean, at the end of the day, they're supposed to reduce the shares outstanding and make your shares more valuable. So if you look at a company's net income versus earnings per share, I mean, those are two different numbers. I mean, net income is the one big number. But earnings per share brings in the the number of shares. And so you know, if you don't see uh, that net income growing, but you see the earnings per share growing, well, that's a function of them reducing that share account, and and that can be okay. It can be. You know, it is a matter of the company that you're investing in and the thesis and whatnot. We see a lot of companies, they exercise that judgment every
0: quarter. That's part of the deal. Um, Just always something to keep in mind. Quick shout out to LinkedIn hiring is not as simple as putting an ad in the paper or posting to a job board. When you're juggling hiring with everything it takes to grow your business, it's important you reach the right candidates at the right time, and that's where LinkedIn comes in. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn and grow as professionals, and discover new job opportunities. That's how LinkedIn makes sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and the right soft skills to meet your role requirements. Things like their work ethic, adaptability, collaboration. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates, so you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business. To get $50 off your first job post, go to LinkedIn.com. That's LinkedIn.com. For $50 off your first job post, terms and conditions apply. Earlier this year, Duncan had been testing a Beyond Sausage sandwich at locations in Manhattan, with an eye towards rolling it out nationally next January. company came out today and said that the test went so well, they're going to be available nationwide November 6th. There are a few data points to this story that I find interesting, um, starting with the fact that they were testing this in Manhattan. Um, the company said that they sold roughly twice as many the sandwiches. That it was that much more popular than they had originally thought it was going to be, and you know, according to their own internal metrics. Um, I don't know. I and I'm I'm not a Dunkin' <laughs> shareholder. I'm a huge fan of the company. Yes, I'm a i am I contribute. So if you're a shareholder, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, the testing in Manhattan was always interesting to me because. Manhattan is not historically a test market. It is not the quote unquote middle America, you know, sort of place. There's a reason I think that when Burger King was testing the impossible Whopper, they didn't do it in New York or LA or even Chicago. They went to St. Louis. They went to the middle of the country. They went to 60 locations. I mean, I'm rooting for Duncan. Um, I I will absolutely try one of these things. Uh, will it, you really? I will. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. If it comes right. to the one across the street or you know, the one oh, there. Okay, one near my so house. now there's the qualifier. If it comes to the one across the street. There's only what about s- the
1: one next to your house, Chris? Uh,
0: that's fine too. <laughs> I'm just not getting in a car and driving to one to, I to hear test that. one. Please.
1: I don't blame you. I mean, I maybe with New York or with Manhattan, they felt like that was. You know this data is valuable in in great numbers. Maybe they felt like there was they were going to get so much data that would that it would be a little bit more reliable. Um, I mean, I agree. It's not necessarily as representative of of any town, USA, as as other places could be. Um, to me, I feel like, and maybe this is maybe. Maybe this is the opposite of what other people feel when it comes to Beyond Meat and meat substitutes. Um, I feel like the fast food industry is exactly where this product makes the most sense. And here's why. I don't think it's because people are going to McDonald's and saying, hey, you know what, I would love it if they had a little bit of a healthier substitute than this Big Mac I'm looking to get. I think when you go to McDonald's, you know what you're going there for, you're getting and Health is probably not top of mind. But I think when you look at fast food by nature, I think that you could substitute a Beyond Meat product for a typical fast food patty in the taste the difference in taste i think is going to be somewhat negligible now if if you go to if i if i invite you to my house one night and i cook burgers on the grill i think you're going to taste a significant difference between the burger i make you and if i slap a beyond meat patty on the grill now this comes from a quasi educated opinion on my part chris i'm not just saying this without having anything to back it up i have tried at least one Beyond meat product. We got the um, we got the uh, bratwursts one night at our house just to try them. and I, I gotta say I was not a fan. Now I'm not a vegetarian. I am looking for ways to curb meat consumption. We're adopting like a meatless Monday's dinner in our house. I mean, I do all the cooking for the most part, so I'm able to kind of be a part of that.
0: What's for dinner tonight?
1: Uh well actually you know what tonight we tonight might be an order out night starting but I'm justifying this because I've got to swing over to IKEA and pick up a mattress and it's gonna be rush hour so my fear is I won't be home until eight o'clock anyway oh oh don't be afraid you 100 percent will not be home until but last night last night it was mashed potatoes and green beans and roast pork so I mean that was really good Um, Mad Max Mad Max turkey seasoning on pork how about that okay you kids. Take note; it works. It's a little bit of Thanksgiving before Thanksgiving, Uh, but yeah. So I I think that I I was not a I was not impressed with the product. So if they are really looking to get people like me, who aren't necessarily looking to make that switch to being a vegetarian, but just looking to reduce meat consumption, I I don't know. There are a lot of different ways I can go meatless. I mean, it could just be any number of ways. That's where my concern comes up with something like a, a Beyond. Meat or or any type of those meat substitute companies beyond like you know your fast food. I think that they make a lot of sense for fast food restaurants. The valuation of the stock still makes zero sense. I mean, it just it just doesn't. I mean, it's a neat company. I'm I'm pulling for them. I really am. I think for Dunkin' this makes a lot of sense because when you look at Dunkin', you look at their comps from the third quarter a year ago. They were 1.3 percent. Quarter two of a year ago, they were 1.4%. And you know, we always talk about with restaurants, the key is to get those comp numbers up, drive traffic. And the way you drive traffic is menu innovation, bringing new things into the market. And we know the power of breakfast. So if it's something as simple as just throwing a new menu item on here like this, I think it's less about. You know, the meatless option, more about menu innovation and giving consumers another choice. And if it works out, great. But again, we've seen already that just because companies are quick to make menu adjustments like this, it doesn't necessarily mean it's permanent. And we still aren't very uh, clear as to how Beyond Meat is going to be able to handle all of this uh, supply chain constraint assuming everybody is signing on.
0: yeah I think from a stock perspective uh, I feel better about what how this moves the needle for Duncan brands versus beyond meat exactly um, uh, by the way Duncan I mean that stock's done pretty well in 2019 up about 20% so, yeah um, so it, but you just raised um, another thing I find interesting uh, about this story which is um, fulfillment. You know, I'm curious to see how they're able to um, keep this going, uh, particularly with moving up the timeline from January to November. Um, But we'll see. It'll, It'll be interesting to see. And by the way, I. I don't think this is like one of the one of the ways we always look at, you know, any type of business announcement is not just, well, what does it mean for this company, but what does it mean for the competition? I don't know if you're Starbucks, if you're necessarily concerned about this because I look at what Starbucks has to offer in terms of foods, both in terms of breakfast and throughout the day, they have non-meat options. They've, you know, if you're Starbucks, you almost don't even need to worry about this because I don't think There's going to be nearly the level of interest, and by the and if you know, in fact, Starbucks had come out with an announcement like, "Oh, we're making some big push into this." Okay, I mean, you can do that. I don't know that that's going to move the needle for Starbucks. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that it does. I mean,
1: I think again, I mean, I think it's a nice, it's a nice way to innovate your menu, become a little bit more with times, give something that some people out there want. I don't think this is just. I don't think that all all. Cities and states are equal. I don't think all markets are equal where this is concerned. Some areas there will be more demand for something like this than others. But I mean, again, I, I do go back. I just, I, I almost, <laughs> I almost wonder if a you know, fast food restaurant concept just un, under the cover of night one night just just changed everything. All of their patties, sausage patties, burger patties, everything just went to, to the meatless substitutes. I wonder how many how many people would actually notice. I mean, it's just it's not known for its high quality taste, right? I'm not knocking it. It's just the purpose that it serves. It's a value oriented offering. I think you can get away with changing that menu a little bit more easily than you could get away with changing the menu of a company that is focused more on and messaging more the quality of the ingredients and the end result.
0: Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on the Motley Fool, may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That does it for this episode of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.